For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, since the new year, we've been considering a model startup healthy church. It's not at all hard to grasp the significance of our studies. The church scene in the United Kingdom is at a point of very significant change. Last 30 to 40 years has seen the most dramatic decline in mainline traditional denominations for centuries. At the turn of the century, Dr. Callum Brown published this book. It was quite a shock at the time, The Death of Christian Britain. And he showed statistically how the mainline denominations were in almost exponential decline and had been since the 19th century. Indeed, from the Church of England's own statistics for mission, published in 2023, the median size of a congregation in the Church of England is now 25. Now, for those who aren't mathematicians, I'm told that means that 50% of churches in England have less than 25 members. It's pitiful. New books have begun to emerge, being Christian after Christendom. And yet, at the same time, some churches, frequently not in mainline denominations, are seeing significant growth. I hope you'll forgive me, and it is invidious to do so, but to speak about what I know about here. So the youth group here at St. Helens numbers between 100 and 130. Actually, when you think about it, they say it's in the top 10% of youth groups in the Church of England which is pitiful that to be in the top 10% if you've got 120 members shows how small the other works are. But there has also been extraordinary growth across the board through numbers of churches here and connected to the work here. Last night we held a meeting in our home for around about 30 young men and women thinking about being involved in paid full-time Christian leadership. And over the years, we've seen numbers of churches planted and so forth. Now, I know it's invidious to talk about that, but it is what I know about, so I hope you'll forgive me. But that pattern is repeated across the country. So amidst the kind of death and decay, there is new life, fresh congregations, new beginnings, and green shoots evident everywhere as you look closely. 
decline and death in the mainline denominations, new life. I like to think if we were to have a kind of still, uh, a, a time-lapse video of the last 40 or 30 or 40 years, rather like Attenborough, you know, on the jungle floor, in amidst the death and decay, there are these extraordinary green shoots coming up all over the place. And many of us here today who call ourselves Christians will be part of churches where we are seeing a significant growth. And therefore, for us to study what you might call a model startup could not be more important. It enables us to hold a plumb line against anything that we might be involved in. If we're young Christians, and a number of us exploring the Christian faith, it enables us to say, well, what is the real McCoy and what isn't? It makes possible a proper assessment of our own efforts and correction where necessary. You might say this letter to the Thessalonians, this young church, you know, it would form a perfect study for bishop's school, if there is such a thing. It doesn't appear that there is, but imagine there were such a thing. Or, or if church wardens or elders or leaders in churches, what a great letter to be studying. Now, already we've seen that the Christians in Thessalonica were known across the region for the works stemming from their faith, the labor stemming from their love, and their steadfast hope in a coming resurrection uh, that has already begun with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You might call those the hallmarks of a healthy church. Already we've seen that God's word was impressed upon them, both by those who spoke it and themselves as they received it, the foundation of a healthy church. And we've seen that the Thessalonians have both received the word and then begun to imitate those who spoke the word to to them at the first steps of a healthy church. But from the beginning of our reading, it's page 1187, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9, There we see that the Thessalonians had turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for Jesus, raised from the dead, a savior from heaven who will deliver us from God's coming judgment. It's hard to find a more compact description of Christian conversion to turn, to serve, to wait. Thessalonica was a, a city port of some significance. I'm told on a clear day one could see across the harbor to Mount Olympus, where the gods of the ancient Greek and Roman pantheon were said to dwell. And as in any predominantly Gentile city of its day, Thessalonica was dominated by idolatry. An idol is the tangible expression of any ideology or philosophy that does not recognize the one true living creator God, God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Greeks and Romans believed that this world was ordered and sustained by a multiplicity of competing deities, gods of business, gods of prosperity, gods of pleasure, gods of love, gods of health, gods of happiness, all of them kind of cohabiting around Mount Olympus. And so first century devotees really became kind of frenetic plate spinners 
desperately trying to keep the gods happy with all these different idol temples and so forth. I don't think it's that different, is it, from London today? I must keep this God happy. I must keep that God happy. I must tick this box. I must tick the other box. But Paul had insisted that idols are dead. God is living. Idols are false. God is true. And so the Thessalonians had turned, it's a very strong word, from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, truly alive, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I mean, I think that gives us an indication of Paul's message and of the authentic Christian message. Uh, We speak on here on a Tuesday against the vain and empty man-made ideologies and philosophies of our age, consumerism, materialism, secularism, We speak instead of one true God who created heaven and earth, who alone is to be worshipped and served. And we speak openly about a coming day of judgment that every single one of us in this building is going to stand before the Lord Jesus and that he is the only one who can deliver us for the judgment that we deserve for our sins. Now, you couldn't get a a, a tighter definition of the Christian faith, really. And you notice how Paul's preaching must have been God-centered to turn to God, future-focused to wait for his son from heaven, and unyielding in its challenge of the ideologies and philosophies that are man-made, empty, vain, and false that govern the age in which we live. Now, this week, that's by way of, we missed verses 9 and 10 last week, and I thought we just had to spend a little bit of time in them. This week, we find Paul turning from talking about the Thessalonians to talking about himself, Silas, and Timothy, who had gone preaching to the Thessalonians. In fact, the whole of chapter 1, verse 3, right the way through to chapter 2, 2 verse 12 is one long piece. There are nine times where Paul says, four, 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 four. You get paragraph after paragraph, tightly connected argument. And so as he turns to talk about himself, he moves to talk about, from talking about the model response to the ministry to the ministry itself. What was it that produced an authentic Christian church? And in whatever situation we find ourselves in, what is it that's going to produce an authentic Christian church in the company in which you're currently working in, in the village where you live, in the part of London that you come from or whatever? I love this. You know, Were there to be an end-of-year annual review... For the gospel worker, what are the core values against which any appraisal should be made? And just today, we're going to look at the bold declaration of the gospel message, the faithful execution of gospel ministry, and the humble affection of the gospel minister. 
Uh, Notice, Paul spoke with courage. There was a bold declaration. Verse 1, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. For though we'd suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, boldness there is a word used especially of speech. We find it used across the New Testament. It comes repeatedly in the book of Acts. When they had prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. And here we see the same spirit-filled confidence. Did you notice the two two-letter words there? We had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. And so you might say, well, where does this courage come from? Well, because they were in God, they belonged to God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Because they were in God, so they had the, and because they had the gospel of God, therefore they spoke with great courage. How is it that Paul is so bold? Why did the early believers have such courage? What makes a man or woman confident to live out and speak the Christian gospel? How, how come you can have two Christians? One sort of seems to be such a snowflake, and the other one appears to be so courageous, regardless of their temperament and character. One just appears to be gripped. Well, if we know that we are in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that we've got the gospel, the good news of God, nothing can shape, shake us. We will be courageous wherever we find ourselves. And that's exactly how Paul was. He speaks there about much conflict. And the word conflict is the word from which we get our word agony in the midst of much agony. And certainly when Paul had been 60 miles up the road in Philippi, he had faced great hostility. He'd been dragged before the mob for preaching the gospel. He'd been charged in court for preaching the gospel. He'd been beaten with rods publicly for preaching the gospel. He'd been thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. And he'd then moved down the road to Thessalonica where he'd been pursued by the same people who had opposed him in Philippi. And he went ahead and spoke exactly the same message again. Because he was in God, he had the gospel of God, nothing was going to stop him. And so Paul's declaration of the Christian gospel was conducted in the face of wholesale opposition. You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Though we'd already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much agony. And in a sense, there's bound to be opposition, isn't there? I hope you're not surprised by that. You know, sometimes as a young Christian, we can be so sort of shocked when we suddenly find there's opposition. But actually, the Christian gospel, as we've heard already, is confrontational. It comes as a challenge to turn from following vain and empty falsehoods 
of human ideology to listen to the God who speaks to us from outside, from above, who has come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ and revealed himself for us, and to turn from these empty ideologies of secularism, capitalism, socialism, whatever it happens to ism, hedonism, whatever ism it has to be, and then to start serving the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven because judgment day is coming. We will face God in judgment. You and I are accountable. There isn't just a blank sheet. We will have to give an account and only Jesus raised from the dead can deliver us from the wrath to come. Now, it seems this is where, to me, this is where our mainline denominational leaders have failed so spectacularly. They seem to be willing to speak in the House of Lords on matters of the economy, the NHS, immigration, the environment, pretty much anything other than the reality of Jesus Christ. When it comes to bold speech in defense of the Christian gospel, their lips appear to be sealed. With Paul, bold declaration, courage. But also integrity. Look at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts, integrity, faithful execution of gospel ministry, bold declaration, courage, faithful execution, integrity. Now, verse 3 contains three key words which tell us what Paul's methods were not. The word error is the word from which we get our word planet. The ancients believed that the planets wandered across the sky. Paul did not stray. Our appeal does not spring from error. The word impurity may carry a sense of inappropriate sexual motive. And the phrase any attempt to deceive uses the word for the part of a trap which was baited in order to catch the prey. And as one writer put it, every clause and phrase here expresses the sense of responsibility which Paul constantly felt with regard to his commission. He didn't drift from the message entrusted to him. He didn't have mixed motives, wanting to gain special favors. He didn't use trickery or guile. The commission Paul had been given, and you and I have been given, Silas and Timothy with him, is that of a fixed message about an objective truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. There is only one living and true God. Jesus died on the cross to deliver us from our sin. He rose from the grave to reign for eternity, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. We will stand before him, whether we like it or not, or believe it or not, whether we're expecting it or not, or agree with it or not. Every single one of us will stand before Jesus Christ one day to give an account And that was Paul's fixed message about an objective truth concerning certain facts. And Paul fulfilled his commission faithfully 
by delivering that message faithfully. And his annual appraisal, if you like, put it to put, if you like, to put it like that, was conducted before God. Did you notice that there in verse 4? Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Twice you, Paul uses the word from the, uh, the metal tester's furnace in terms of testing the, the assayer, I think is the technical word, to see if there's any impure alloy in it. Just as we have been tested by God, sifted, assessed, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests, who sifts the heart. In the Bible, it is God who tests the heart, God who knows the motive. And so there's great freedom from that for the Apostle Paul, from seeking, if you like, to please the audience of one. Great liberation. He conducts his ministry. Yeah, it's conducted by all sorts of people all over the Mediterranean, but he conducts his ministry before one, really, an audience of one. A friend of mine, uh, he, he's now an archbishop, funnily enough, but um, strange things happen. Anyway, he, he was uh, doing his first post in a job somewhere, and you know he preached his first sermon. His senior, uh, senior pastor there didn't breathe a word. He was hoping for some sort of, you know, well done or something like that, or some sort of feedback. Preached his second sermon, not a word. Preached his third sermon, not a word. And eventually, he plucked up courage and said to the person who is meant to be overseeing him, say, well, what? what what do you think? And the guy just replied like this is, you preach before an audience of one. Sorry, that's my Australian accent. It gives you a clue of what I'm talking about there. But it, I mean, I'm not sure I would necessarily, uh, you know, train a young preacher that way, but it really stuck and it helped the audience of one. Great liberation. And there is the Apostle Paul. The task of the Christian leader is not to water down the message, diluting it to suit the taste of the listener. The task of the Christian leader is not to add to the message, embellishing it to make it attractive to the listener. The task of the Christian preacher is not to leave bits out of the message, things that we think might not appeal, or to reshape the message in form more palatable. The key word is entrusted. A trustee, you might say. Proved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Every clause and phrase here expresses the sense of responsibility which Paul constantly felt with regard to his commission. John Stott, the stewards of the gospel are primarily responsible neither to the church nor to its synods or leaders, but to God himself. On the one hand, this is a disconcerting fact, because God scrutinizes our hearts and their secrets and his standards are very high. On the other, it is marvelously liberating since God is more knowledgeable, impartial and merciful than any human being, ecclesial court or committee we might face. To be accountable to God is to be delivered from the tyranny of human criticism. Finally, the humble affection of the gospel minister. Verses 5 and 8, I think, can be summed up in two words, humility 
and love. Let me read it. The number of it, I think, is there. We were gentle among you. Verse 5. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, saying, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become literally beloved to us. You know, the strongest word for love in the New Testament is the word agape. And Paul says, you had become agapetoi, the beloved to us. And don't you love that image of the nursing mother taking care of her children? And Paul's language of himself, we were gentle. Isn't it striking that the man who was so bold... You know, a man, you would think with a will of iron, came with such gentleness, uncompromisingly courageous, and simultaneously selflessly gentle. Well, we must draw to a close. Is this not so helpful to us? How attractive it is? How contrasting it is with the kind of leadership that we face. I'm told that 50% of the world's population is going to the polls this year. We are going to have election manifestos and promises and everybody trying to bait the trap this way or that way to get people uh, and to allure them into whatever it happens to be. But here we have a message from God. We're not going to change it. It's not going to be watered down. It's a straight message And there is a responsibility for faithful execution of ministry and real integrity. And you notice how they all feed off each other. Okay, Because he's in God and has the message of God, so inevitably he will have the self-confidence, or rather the God-confidence, to deliver the message straight. But as he delivers the message straight, the message is the message of the God of love. And so it can only be truly embodied in humble affection. But once you shift and try and alter, well, inevitably you'll become insecure in ministry, desperately seeking around people to say you're doing well and all the rest of it because you're not performing, as it were, or not exercising your ministry uh, before the audience of one. It's beautifully put, and it would uh, require another three sessions to do justice to it. Let me lead us in prayer. You turned from idols to serve the living and true God. We praise you, our Father in heaven, that you are the living God, the only God, the true God. We praise you, our Father in heaven, that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to die so that we can be forgiven. We praise you that he has been raised from the grave and will return in glory and delivers us from certain coming judgment. We pray that you would strengthen each of us in our convictions of this reality in God with the message of God. And that you make each of us faithful in executing ministry you've given to us. And that we would do so 
in like manner to the Lord Jesus himself in love and gentleness and kindness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.